The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to Tech Sequences. Since the late 90s, consumers have been able to book their travel, track their finances, and control many aspects of their lives online. But understanding what their genetic material indicated about their ancestry or health information was either unavailable or cost prohibitive for most consumers, at least until the mid-2000s. In 2006, 23andMe was founded by Anne Wojcicki, Linda Avey, and Paul Cusenza. 23andMe emerged as one of the pioneering companies in the consumer genetic testing space. The company's name, 23andMe, alludes to the 23 pairs of chromosomes in the human genome. Marked by a convergence of advancements in genomics and a growing interest in personal genetics, the company grew quickly, inspiring a number of competitors. The concept of direct-to-consumer DNA testing gained momentum as technological advancements, particularly in DNA sequencing and genotyping technologies, made it increasingly feasible to analyze large portions of an individual's genome at a relatively affordable cost. 23andMe in particular gained attention for its unique approach offering insights into both ancestry and health-related genetic information. Consumers could simply provide a saliva sample, send it to the company, and receive detailed reports on their genetic heritage, potential health risk, and genetic predispositions. This accessibility and personalized nature of the results contributed to the widespread popularity of 23andMe and similar DNA testing kits. Today, according to 23andMe, more than 14 million people worldwide have used the test. These kits have played a transformative role in bringing genomics directly to the people, sparking conversations about genetics, heritage, and health on a global scale. The rise of DNA testing kits has not been without controversy as concerns about data privacy, accuracy of results, the potential psychological impact of genetic information, and exclusion have been raised. Author and professor Dr. Jenny Reardon critically examined the impact of companies like 23andMe within the context of biocapitalism and social justice in her book, The Post-Genomic Condition, Ethics, Justice, Knowledge After the Genome. Scrutinizing the company and its marketing exploits in the pursuit of data, she questioned whether the company was instead engaging in, quote, biocapitalism meaning encouraging consumers to participate actively in the commodification of their genetic information, essentially becoming patients in waiting by paying to explore and interact with their genomes on the 23andMe platform. Reardon argues that while 23andMe marketed itself as a democratizing force in genetics, its early high price tag and appeal to the tech-savvy elite contradicted this narrative, raising questions about who had access to this genetic information and how it intersected with issues of privilege. 23andMe has also been dogged by questions such as accuracy and access and control of the data. However, all of this raises bigger questions about the role of justice in scientific or technical advancements. How can we know and act ethically in a world where life becomes information, information becomes capital, and capital is equated with freedom? Our guest today is Dr. Jenny Reardon. Jenny is a professor of sociology and the founding director of the Science and Justice Research Center at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her research draws into focus questions about identity, justice, and democracy that are often silently embedded in scientific ideas and practices, particularly in modern genomic research. Her training spans molecular biology, the history of biology, science studies, feminist and critical race studies, and the Sociology of Science, Technology, and Medicine. She is the author of Race to the Finish, Identity and Governance in an Age of Genomics, and The Post-Genomic Condition, Ethics, Justice, and Knowledge after the Genome. She has been the recipient of fellowships and awards from, among others, the National Science Foundation, the Max Planck Institute, the Humboldt Foundation, the London School of Economics, the Westinghouse Science Talent Search, and the United States Congressional Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. 
So can you talk a little bit about your background and why you got interested in questions about justice, inclusion, and democracy in scientific and technical research and advances? Yeah. Um, well, I started out in scientific research at a very young age. Um, I was, I think, 13 years old uh, when I built my first laboratory in my basement in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, at the time... Did you blow anything up? <laughs> no, but I did have carbon uh, radioactive materials in my basement, which I'm not sure you can do anymore. Wow. Um, short story is that um, from from those humble beginnings, um, I eventually moved from doing environmental research. I, at that time, I was studying um, at early days of the ozone hole breaking down, studying the effect that enhanced levels of UVB radiation caused by a breakdown of the ozone hole would have on the primary productivity of the marine diatom Thalassiosiris pseudonoma. Um, I then uh, moved from the environmental sciences into molecular evolutionary uh, molecular evolution when I was in, uh, an undergraduate at the University of Kansas. And uh, I learned how to sequence DNA when it was still pouring hot liquids between two plates of glass. But I was always that person who was uh, asking the larger questions like, so what is the gene? Um, and my lab mates would always say, oh, that's just Jenny. She asked those questions. Um, and I didn't really want to be the lab clown for the rest of my life. Um, so um, at the time, uh, there was a very new field. Uh, in fact, I was uh, uh, only... I was a graduate student in the second cohort of this field at Cornell University. It's called Science and Technology Studies. Um, and instead of going on in graduate school to uh, be someone who worked on the Human Genome Diversity Project, um, which was when we sequenced the human genome, the critique of it was great. We got one human human genome. It's not representative of any of anyone. And what biology is really interested in is the diversity of life. And so I got really interested in that project. And that project, actually, one of the leaders was Mary Claire King. And she wrote an essay called Genomics. Or no, she was in a edit. She was in a volume of like biographies about scientists. And her at the title of the essay about her was Genomics and Justice. And that's the first time I ever heard those two things put together. I had been a biology and political science major, always interested in bridging these these fields. And it was Mary Claire King who uh, helped me to see it was possible, one of the one of the people. And it, that essay was about her use of genomics to do population genetics work to put together families of the disappeared in Argentina. Um, and so this is a case of an early case of creating a DNA database that had justice as its orientation. 23andMe, which you mentioned that we'll be talking about, also made that claim much later. So this became my goal to do this. But instead of working in the lab, I decided to be and, and on the Human Genome Diversity Project, I decided to go to graduate school in this very new field that everyone said, well, I have no guarantee for you for the future. We don't know if there'll be any jobs, but we can guarantee it will be interesting. And that certainly was the case. And I ended up uh, writing my dissertation actually on the controversies, thank goodness, I did not become a graduate student working on the Human Genome Diversity Project because that project got labeled the Vampire Project, a project more interested in sucking the blood of indigenous peoples than in their continued survival. So I take that experience with me as a young aspiring scientist who really believed that science could advance the cause of social justice and the project that I had wanted to work on with Mary Claire King um, being accused of being a racist biocolonial projects. So how did that happen? That, that question and how do we do better in science? How do we understand the social issues that help us to achieve our goals that we set out for ourselves, whether or not it's a more democratic or just world, has been really at the heart of my work for the last really three decades. So following on that, in your book, The Post-Genomic Condition, you talk about the dehumanization of science and the key question we need to ask as a result, which is what Alexa quoted in the in the intro, namely, how can we know and act ethically in a world where life becomes information, information becomes capital, and capital is equated with freedom? So what do you mean? <laughs> well, 
I think really in, in the age that I grew up in, science was this, and particularly the life sciences, um, they were this aspirational force that was, you know, like, for example, when I was uh, we're talking in the 1990s, there was all this talk about how genomics was going to lead to the undermining of race and 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 nail the final coffin or, or hammer the final nail in the coffin of of race and and lead to the end of racism because it was going to show how we were all one and and we weren't all different we were all very variable well that didn't happen um what did happen um you know there were all these aspirations of democracy and justice what was happening at the same time though um, at the same time, you we were hearing claims about the internet. We we create access to information through this thing called the internet. It's going to bring us all together. This kind of kumbaya moment we were in at the end of the last millennium. Genomics was a part of that, um, but also like the internet, it was a part. It became a valuable, uh, uh, in the sense of commodity, valuable commodity. Uh, in the in the 21st century, information became capital. Uh, it, if oil was running out and fish in the sea were running out, well, the argument was what wasn't running out and what the economies could run on was information and, and biological information was part of that. And just as, as Jody Dean has argued, um, about the internet, um, you know, how is it possible, uh, for something that is like the biggest source of the economy in the world and where a, a, a lot of money is being made off of it. How can we be really banking our democracies, our claims to democracy off of something that is uh, fundamentally about um, making money? Um, and a lot of the, the work that I look at in the book shows those dilemmas. So you have scientists who maybe have no interest in becoming millionaires or billionaires, but they get caught up in uh, the, 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 the drive towards um, the bioeconomy and uh, genomic information as a new source of capital. And that creates uh, real dilemmas for how we achieve democracy and justice in a world that wants to stake that in science. You talked a little bit about the Human Genome Project, but for those of us who may not know what it is, what is it? What has it yielded thus far? And why does it raise these issues of social justice? Well, the Human Genome Project uh, was an idea uh, to sequence all the base pairs of, of one human genome um, it was an idea that was born in the late 1980s, um, and uh, it took about, I don't know, I would say that they said the first draft of it was done in 2003. It was a, it was a project that, that produced a tremendous number of technological breakthroughs that allowed that to happen. Um, and going back to my point about uh, capitalism and how it gets brought into this, um, a fundamental element of the Human Genome Project, something that ended up being defined by, was who in the end would sequence the human genome? Would it be the public entity, the United States government, the United Kingdom, or would it be this private entity that had formed called Solera um, that entered into the, the project of sequencing the, the human genome um, and was in a quote unquote race with the public sector. And the real concern was, was the private sector going to do it first? Was Solera going to do it first and lock up the genome in patents? This became a huge issue. And as I talk about in the book, one of the really ironic parts of this struggle to free the genome from, from, from private enclosure by Solera was that everybody started buying more machines. So in order to win the race, um, ironically, you fed the private private industry because now everyone was, in order to go faster, we need to buy more sequencing machines. So you see in the early 2000s, a real growth in this sec sector of um, uh, sequencing, sequencing um, companies. This is where Illumina came from. Um, some of the big um, companies that still are around today got their start then. And we're really fueled by what was at heart um, a struggle over 
a, a democratic goal or a goal of justice that we can't, this should be a genome for the people. You know, the genome is the map as, as, as President Clinton described it. It's the greatest map ever made. Um, you know, it's a map for the people uh, to understand this, you know, this fundamental part of being human, uh, the, se the sequence of life. And um, we, it needs to be available for everyone. It needs to be publicly available. It needs to be publicly available information. And, um, and it should not be locked into private enclosure. And at the end of the day, they, the, the public and the private sector uh, brokered an agreement. But it did end up that we had uh, gene patenting ended up coming along, although sequence was not uh, uh, patented. Um, later, some of the sequences would be patented, and this is where you get the Myriad um, case. So the sequencing is, is important because it helps explain, for example, potential diseases uh, and why they might be, um, and also helps in cure for, for drugs, what drugs yeah. may actually help. So this is what I'm assuming... Yeah, that this is what really fed the drive from a from a private sector to get involved. Yes. So yeah, and at that time, the belief was that genomic information was going to fuel the next uh, revolution in biomedicine, and you know, pharmaceutical companies. Um, I believe then, but certainly now, but but then I think they were still worrying about they had a limited number of drugs in their system. The patents were running out. Uh, the pipeline was running out. Genomic information promised uh, a real bonanza in possible targets. Like you, you, would, you could use the genomic information to help you to understand, well, where what proteins might be involved in this disease process? And then that then became the stepping stone to creating a, a new drug. And so there was real interest by the pharmaceutical companies um, uh, to, to uh, use this, this information. But what's interesting that I'm not sure that many people appreciate is that in fact, it was the pharmaceutical companies who were, as Kaushik Sundarajan has pointed out in his book, Bio Capital, um, it, is the, it is the pharmaceutical companies they were, the start particle student companies were pushing for um, an open access to the genomic information. They also did not want Solera to lock it up because then you're locking it up at the level of the of the of the corporations that were producing the sequencing technology, not the ones that were going to produce the drugs. So the fear was that these little or biotech companies, we're going to lock it up in patents, and the big pharma actually were were pushing for uh, uh, ending gene patenting because they didn't want to to make money off of the genetic information. They wanted to make money off the drugs, and so this is a complicated cycle. So when people are are making arguments for open access, it does it doesn't it's not necessarily an argument against capital at all. It's just like who's going to get access to to the information to produce what kind of product, what kind of capital? Just one quick question. Can you patent gene sequencing today? No. Uh, so gene uh, gene patenting was overruled in a, and there's the 10, it's actually the 10 year anniversary of this uh, as upon us right now um, in the Myriad case, ACLU um, took this up in 2005. They started to uh, want to challenge this. Um, the the company that really sparked the the ire of many was Myriad, which was which focused on um, a breast cancer testing. So so while there's been a lot of promise in genomics, um, it's actually been quite hard um, to really find those genetic variants that are absolutely atta attached to disease. But but breast cancer is one of those BRCA1, BRCA2. These are highly penetrant, you know language in the language that they use variants they're highly associated with getting breast cancer and so it's very important um to to those who are at risk for breast cancer to be able to test for because of maybe family history etc to be able to get access to these tests but but myriad um had locked up those those variants and patents and so cornered the market um on the on, on the testing which was quite expensive um and ACLU uh, in uh, I decided to take this on in 2013, took it all the way to the Supreme Court and was successful. 
So a lot of the drive for the, you know, um, for pursuing this with, with capitalistic approaches is that, you know, the the notion that the company that the research actually takes a lot of money is a lot of investment in the equipment necessary in order to carry out the the research. Um, and, and therefore, it, you know, it's not necessarily feasible to, to always carry it out with public money. And that I mean, therein lies the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but I yeah. wonder, is that true as true in Europe as it is in the US? Or is there a slightly different perspective on how to carry out this kind of research, and possibly consequently a different, you know, who makes the breakthroughs? No, it's so interesting that you bring that up because, um, you know, in uh, certainly the the differences, the political economic and the differences between these countries have mattered in how genomics has developed. Um, So let's just take the U.S. versus the United Kingdom. Um, In the United Kingdom, the Wellcome Foundation bailed out the United, the, the, the U.K. public government. So Wellcome, which, you know, is a made its money on, you know, that foundation comes from pharmaceutical uh, uh, profits, um, created the largest, I don't know, maybe one of the largest, the largest biomedical philanthropic foundation in the world. And the thing about genomics was that it was a very expensive science. It took, as I said, all these machines that were quite expensive. It wasn't just the machines that were expensive. It was the chemicals. In some ways, the chemicals were more expensive than the machines. And so it it was outstripping the capacity of any public government to fund this. And this meant that scientists were subject to being courted by wealthy uh, donors. And, you know, there's all kinds of great stories about the wealthy folks who wanted to fund this. One, one I forget, you know, the exact names anymore, but I remember one made their money off of selling purses, you know, like there were a lot of people who came along and like offered scientists money here, look, we'll start a company, I'm going to give you money to start a company, right, to do this work. Um, Because the hype had worked, everyone believed genomics was the next best thing. And these were scientists who maybe had real commitments to the public sector, like John Sulston in the United Kingdom, who became known as like the advocate of open access to genomics well he early on also was courted by these by these wealthy folks but he was from the united kingdom and the welcome foundation uh uh put a lot of money into genomics and put the uk as a global leader in genomics in the united the united kingdom um the public government i don't think that there's like in the united kingdom there's really a strong um uh, tie between the, you know, as there is in the U.S., public-private partnerships is really important. But the difference in the United Kingdom is that they have a public, they have a national health service, and so you can't make the same amount of money off of drugs as you could in the United States. So, so that is a real difference with how the United Kingdom has developed. You also have a different level of trust in the government um, in the United Kingdom. In a system where everybody receives access to healthcare, it's a little easier to convince people to hand over their DNA, which gets back to your case that you you entered in with with 23andMe. Um, there would be no market for 23andMe really in the United Kingdom, um, uh, although people use it in in the United Kingdom. The same kind of argument that was made in the U.S. could not be made in the United Kingdom because public access is still to healthcare is so much at the heart of, uh, well, after after World War II, this was one of the big successes in the United Kingdom was the production, production of the National Health Service. So, the, and the United Kingdom has invested in genomics as uh, a source of its uh, growth in its economy, a knowledge economy, a life science economy over the last couple couple of decades. So it's much more central there. Um, and it's worked in a way that in, that it hasn't worked in the U.S. because of the variety of these of these elements. So now that we're what more than ten years into this genome project, um, can you talk about how has it fared? In other words, what have we learned in these ten years? Uh, what were some of the exclusionary policies that that this project brought up? Um, and and who who owns who accesses the data? Who owns the data? Is there anything such as data ownership in that? Data ownership is a very complicated issue. Mm. Uh, 
as you will well know, and those listening to this podcast will know too, uh, what do you mean by own? Um, ownership is a lot about who controls the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so it's so we may not have patents, but we have uh, powerful players who have built the platforms, um, who control the uh, who have the biggest databases. So Twenty Three and Me has made itself uh, into a player by creating, I think, one of the largest databases of DNA that exists with 14 million people having, I mean, that was the number you gave. I hadn't checked it recently. Um, having provided their samples to 23andMe. I mean, 23andMe is not making money off of owning, well, do does 23andMe own your DNA? They certainly, um, they don't own your DNA or do they own your data? They can use your data. Right. And you know you have to read all the fine print to find out the ways in which they can use it and can't use it. I remember the early days of 23andMe when there were real concerns about um, whether or not uh, you know 23andMe would have to turn over the data to say the FBI or the CIA. Like, do, does 23andMe control your data? Well. To a certain extent, they said, look, we will promise you, you won't do it. We won't do it unless we're absolutely forced to. But, you know, with the Golden State, you know, killer, Golden Gate, Golden State killer case. And um, in California, there we have an example. It wasn't 23andMe. It was another um, uh, genetic ancestry testing site. Um, But that was a case where people were not informed that the data was being used for criminal justice purposes, um, and the the that was a, that was something that people worried about. And Twenty Three and Me said, "Look, we will assure you that we won't do it." But the reality is that the FBI could come in and say, "You know, we want access." Yeah, subpoenas are subpoenas yeah, are pretty powerful. Especially when they come from <laughs> places like, yeah, uh, FBI yeah. and CIA. So. Um, yeah, so they, so when you say, do, do they, um, data ownership, I mean, ownership is this, I think people think, oh, you know, I, I have a right, I own it. Well, it's a negotiated, right? It's a complicated, right? Uh, it depends. Um, and then the other thing I would say about that is that there's formal legal rights, and then there's in effect what happens just by how the system is built. So, um, uh, you know, you could have like 23andMe can give you access to your genetic information. Well, what are you going to do with it? You know, like if you don't have access to the the pipelines that can analyze it and do all the, the machine learning and the big data, you know, analyses of that genomic data, um, there's not a lot that, you know, when, when 23andMe was talking about, you know, power to the people, well, what were these people going to do absent access to to very quite expensive and complicated systems that they would need to make sense of these things? And there was at that time, like we, that was a time when you had like uh, uh, a lot of like citizen science labs that were popping up in Silicon Valley and people in their, the bio curious. I remember they were one group and they were you know, creating like labs in their garages, just on that model of the Silicon Valley, you know, the, 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 the stories that we have of how the internet was born and these, and these, and these companies were born in the garages in Silicon Valley. Well, if you were talking 2008, 2009, 2010, there was a lot of that happening. Um, when yes, you could do some of your own sequencing, but if you were going to really do anything particularly interesting, you needed access to all kinds of data you needed access to uh you know the all kinds of uh complicated pipeline bio uh bioinformatic infrastructure so basically whoever was there first and was able to build that build a power base then yeah by virtue of having access to that right yeah and this is how places you know like Early on, like 23andMe itself, itself, like we could say 23andMe built built a platform um, early on that became powerful. But 23andMe also locked into systems that they might have wanted to change, like, for example, using of the Illumina chips early on. I remember one of the issues was, uh, well, how could we change from these chips 
when and and our work with aluminum when we've um we're already on that platform so there's there's some power to being in early and then there's some constraints to being in early because you because these systems are not easy easy to change yeah and and on that note of change i guess a question that that I would ask is what would be a better way to handle this? I mean, I'm assuming that we have a better grasp of some of the ramifications and implications than we did 20, 30 years ago when, you know, it was an if we can sequence the genome, not when. But what's what would be a a, a fairer and more balanced approach? I would to say this? like one thing that would have helped early on is if if the if in this space and any other space where we have an emergent news new form of science and technology, we had a less uh, naive, simple understanding of how of, of the political and social world in which this this new form of science and technology was going to to take root. So to 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 just say you know that like Linda Avey and Anne Wojcicki did that they were going to democratize genomics like that was a claim that was a very simplistic claim. It, it was good PR, but what did it actually mean? Um, and there weren't a lot of people that they employed that could really help them think through those issues in a sophisticated way, which I think in order to build trust, in order to build something that's actually gonna be something that might even approximate democratizing anything, um, you need to build that into your uh, your ecosystem, your innovation ecosystem from the very beginning um, and not rely on buzzwords. And I think it backfired a bit on 23andMe when they said democratize, you know, genomics. And then they came out with the initial price tags and um, they held spit parties in New York for the rich and famous. Well, Chevy Chase, you know, like at, at Fashion Week in New York in 2009, you know, with Linda Avey, pictured with Linda Avey. I mean, those are not the pictures of of of, of genomics for the people. Those are th that's an image of genomics for the elite. Um, they, I mentioned this in my book. You know, they they they're, they 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 tried to attract early adopters to try it out because they were trying to convince people to to do this, and it was at that time seemed you know, for many people seemed risky, you know, because would they be discriminated against by by sequencing their DNA? Who would get access to it? Would they be denied health insurance? We didn't have GINA at that time, the genetic information, you know, the, the law that protects us against discrimination um, based on genomic information, except for it does not, I will, I will say, importantly, it does not apply to long-term care um, or to disability insurance. So this is something that everyone should be aware of. Um, but in any case, they had skydivers. They went after skydivers, people who were high risk people to 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 be these the, the early people, you know, that were adopting it. And then it turns out that most of those people were that they re, re, that that per purchased it early on. Lo and behold, were and this is problematic. I will say how we to talk about this but who identified as white. And that became a real issue for the for the uh, for 23andMe. They did not have a diverse database. Hmm. Um, and I don't think that they had really thought much about that. So it how do we- self-selected then because of the early adopter, a high price point. Yes, yeah. right, right. So there's a lot of inconsistency in their thinking that anyone, well, I shouldn't say anyone, but if they had had people uh, working with them early on who could think through these broader societal issues, I mean, I think one thing we really need in the innovation space is to think about social issues as, as critical to the innovation, um, rather than the, the hype we often hear about how, you know, science and technology is an inherently democratic force that will help all the people. At this point, I think it's pretty apparent to, to a lot of people that that just is not the case. And that by claiming that, you're not helping anything. In fact, you could be hurting trust in science by doing that. It's, it sounds to me like this is so um, 
reminds me of the early days of the internet. There's such parallels between this genomic project and the early days of the internet, because at that time, there was this feeling that the globalization was in full swing. You know, the Berlin Wall had come down. Uh, we wanted to, to connect the world. We felt that the internet was a um, unifying type of utility that was available to each and everybody. It was truly democratizing access. And then later on, we found out that, no, there were unintended consequences. So policies, governance policies came up. Some regulatory issues came up. Um to try to address that, you know, as a as a follow on, not preemptively. Having said that, yeah. But I, I, you know, I, I want to, I want to push back just a little bit there, or at least maybe take it as take another stab at it. Um, going back to the uh, having less naivete point of view that Jenny started her answer to the last question with, um, I think that yes, there was a lot of naivete in in the evolution of the internet and. I'm maybe not over it, um, but I don't think we could have then predicted who the gatekeepers no, were going right. to be. I mean, I think if you'd asked in the 1990s, you would have said it's the backbone operators, man. But in fact, you know, it was this, <laughs> this, this, you know, university out school of a dorm service built. Yeah, out of a dorm <laughs> room, you get Facebook um, that takes uh, over the world and 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 is the real force in in mm-hmm. what became the technology so i don't know if there are if there are analogies there in the genomics world whether whether it would have been predictable where where the real players were going to be or not i think it's a really good point leslie i don't think you can predict and things do emerge but what you can predict is that uh there's going to be some very complicated questions of power and access and any form of new form of science and technology that is claiming to help all people and to just make a a claim that we are we are democratic um and and not thinking through or having people can help you who have expertise in this area around uh how technologies build in inequalities um how that happens in the actual practice of conceiving of and uh inventing these sciences and technologies and not afterwards. I mean, often what we're thinking is, oh, the inequalities that happen after we produced it, but not we're building it into the very platform itself. And I think that's what we've been poor. That's what I think you could predict is that we have been poor about uh, recognizing this repeated pattern. Um, and, you know, there recently we've had, we've seen policy changes that are trying to address this. So the Biden-Harris administration um, uh, for the first time ever created a science and society team in their office of science and technology policy. And that team in the August, in August of, of 2022 issued a vision of how to center equity in STEM research. Um, and they have laid out a lot of uh, possible avenues towards doing that. Um, whether that is, uh, you know, increasing the number of on on ramps on into uh, tech uh, uh, a training, um, so that it isn't just through, say, elite universities or or even just any university that, that it could happen outside of those universities. That we think about how do we change who gets access to the spaces in which technologies are imagined, um, not the spaces in which they are produced and used, but even just in the spaces where who dreamt up the, even the idea that we would go for genomics? Well, actually, the idea that we would go for human the Human Genome Project, that idea got dreamt up pro- partly on the campus I'm on. At UC Santa Cruz, we hosted the meeting in 1986 in which our then-chancellor, um, partly because he was unable to convince, uh, well, he was, he, 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 it was, he was going after, um, uh, a philanthropic funding for the campus. And uh, this idea related to a telescope fell through. So looking at outer space and came up with this idea of looking at inner space. And and that was the imaginative space in which the Human Genome Project emerged. Well, who had access to that space? Who was in that room? Well, I can tell you, it wasn't a very diverse yeah. space. So I think this is something we don't, readily recognize as important to change. It's not just access to 
the the drugs or the the tests, but ac- access to the imaginative space, to to the places where this symbolic power is produced to even imagine what it is we all quote unquote want. You know, I, I see the convergence of multiple disciplines, you know, biotechnology, and with it comes some of the issues that we experienced early on. Uh, for example, um, I was making the, the point that there is some parallel path between the, the, the emergence of the internet and the genome project and because of the time that it was actually thought of, right? And at that time, yeah, the people working in the internet access industry, that wasn't very diverse either. I think what we, again, going from memory, and Leslie can correct me, we thought about it in terms of maybe compliance, maybe some governance mechanisms, but the idea of equity never came up. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I, I think that's probably true in a large sense, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that my former employer, the Internet Society, in its early days actually did a lot of work to, uh, to get to get the internet deployed in in all over the globe and and by did doing work i mean training workshops empowering people to be part of the global movement now that doesn't come back to jenny's point of who's in the room and who gets to decide power. not just what's the imagination but who gets to decide that project x is important right right and also so, that the concentration of power which you know leslie you and i have covered many times on this podcast so um jenny if we had to do it over again, and let's say, you know, the Genome Project was starting today, uh, (laughs) what would we do differently? How do we make sure that social justice is built in from the the get-go and not trying to force fit it afterwards? Well, I think we would, um, first of all, I mean, one of the, the, the values that became central to genomics was open access. Again, I think we would have a much more nuanced idea about what what is an ethical approach to property when it comes to genomics, um, that open access really is not the be all end all of what democracy is. Um, and in some ways, the kind of open access approach we had to genomics was sort of like, you know, your two-year-old's approach to ethics, like shared, you know, don't keep your toys, share them. But that's such a simple idea. You know, it, it isn't, it doesn't in any way um, address, um, you know, the, the kinds of complexities I was talking about earlier, like the way opening access in this particular way is going to enable closing it up later in this other way. And so you have to look at the whole ecosystem, you know, not just the genetic information, but how that's then going to get tied into products. Um, All the drugs. way down to drug so, companies. And yeah. Yeah. And and so when you're thinking about policy and you're thinking about approaches to property, you know, a less reductionist thinking about, you know, owning uh, this DNA data Rather, that data sits in an ecosystem of other things that can be owned. Um, so how do you get the people in the room and the and the expertise in the space um, that can think relationally about how tech technology and science develops? That's one thing. Um, you would want, you know, early on in this room, uh, you know, the, the genome project let's say 1980s, that's still a time when I, I mean, I was coming into science at that time. And, and that was a time where it was like, gender was the issue. We want more women in science. Um, and, you know, I was part of that wave. And I remember standing up at a American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting and saying, you know, look, I'm a woman in science. I was a woman in science. You can get them in science, but can you keep them? And if you don't change the culture of the spaces of innovation. If you if you continue to, you're like, okay, we gave scholarships to Jenny Reardon or who else, these people who categorize themselves as women, but then they got in the labs and we told them that they couldn't take time off to have children or, or you know, we make snide remarks about how I'm not sure we want women in the lab because they cry, which is still the case. I mean, in 2023, you will not have 
a diverse group of people who were in, as I said, those imaginative spaces, the PIs, the principal investigators who get to decide how a field is going to develop. Um, so, you know, when you ask me, how would you do it differently? My answer, Alexa, is partly you're going to have to do science and technology differently. Genomics just happened to be the elite form of the life sciences at that time. And to do it differently means doing science and technology innovation fundamentally differently. It means changing the culture of uh, how science gets done. It means changing um, uh, how the funding happens. Um, and who? And one thing that's really happened over these last few decades is that you have philanthrocapitalism. You have billionaires now able to decide what they're going to put money into and it's gotten worse like the 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 amount of public funding funding science innovation is continually going down and that is a fundamentally anti-democratic force um and so the system is actually in some ways a worse place than it was you know at the beginning of of, of the genome project and that is something i think that is not being looked at enough um in my opinion, is is the funding structures and 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 genomics is a great example of that big change in the life sciences. Prior to that, biology could happen with smaller grants. So you could be you could get you know a million dollars and do great biology research, or even a hundred thousand dollars. Now you need millions and billions. That is a fundamentally anti-democratic force in the life sciences. Yeah, very true. Very true. Um, so we need to rethink how uh, scientific innovation and, and technological innovation is done from just the ground up. And and you're right. You know, the good thing is that we have at least that this this project to look back on and see some case examples. You said, you know, for example, who's funding it? Very very important. And when I was researching this, I didn't even think about. Uh, who's actually funding this. Jenny, this is really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, for telling us about uh, the social justice and equity issues. You know, the other thing I would say, if I can add sure. just something, like, um, I mean, the, the, I think the thing that we could do differently too, that I remiss for, for not saying, I think if I were to do it over, I would put justice instead of ethics at the core of it. Mm -hmm. um, how are they different? We, how are they different? Well, so, you know, when um, uh, we have something now called the Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications Program, that was one of the famous products of the Human Genome Project. And it came, it arose because at a press conference, Jim Watson, you know, who was the, he got, J James Watson, who got the, the Nobel Prize for, along with Francis Crick, Notably, not not Rosalind Franklin. I want to just point out. Yeah, right. <laughs> we were talking about um, uh, was giving an early press conference about the Genome Project, and this was right at the time when the bell curve had come out, and there were real concerns about genetic discrimination um, around the Human Genome Project. And he was asked about this, and was asked, "Well, how are we going to deal with this?" And this is just the story I've heard over and over again. Hard for me to verify. It's validity. But he said, well, we're going to give a certain percentage of our money to look at the ethical, ethical, social implications of this research. That became the ethical, legal, social implications program of the Human Genome Project, which did a lot of good work. But a lot of the work really focused around some pretty narrow issues like informed consent, um, and the privacy issues were really very important as well. But these more fundamental issues of, you know, beyond individual rights, you know, a lot of the focus was on these individual rights, whether or not they were privacy, property, or informed consent, as opposed to these deeper issues of what should be the first principles that, that guide the creation of our sciences and our societies, um, which to me, our questions, those are questions of justice. Um, we often make a claim to justice when something's broken. We'll say, this is an unjust system. It may be legal, but it's not just. Um, and I think that's where I would start the discussion now, would be if, I, if it were to be a do-over, 
it would be to say, what are the what are the fundamental um, uh, issues here that need to be addressed? And you know, it's only very belatedly that equity and 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 issues of social justice have have come into the discussion at all. And that would be where I would begin. I would not begin with this narrow frame of individual rights. I would I would begin with the collective structural issues. These ones around who who's funding this, who is going to ultimately benefit, what kind of a of social you know economic social structures is this going to embed? Let's not be naive that this is going to be accessible to everyone. It won't be. We know it from the internet. I mean, the internet was emerging at about the same time as you noted as, as the genome, so we couldn't have learned it from that yet. But that's how I would, and going forward, what we can learn from this, I think, is to think more structurally about uh, how science and technology innovation gets done and to put justice at the core of our concern, as opposed to a narrow kind of regulatory frame of did I violate a policy or, you know, did I um, violate someone's individual rights, which is important. But if you really want to build trustworthy uh, forms of innovation that are going to produce the kind of change that we often hear about uh, that 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 innovators and and entrepreneurs want, then justice has to be more at the core of of the discussion. Thank you for clarifying. So that's, I mean, clearly it's imperative, but it's also a really tall order. Yep. But- that's why we are. I, I'll put a little plug in where the work that we're doing now. Uh, we've started an I- initiative called the Leadership and the Equitable and Ethical Design. Of STEM research. And this is about looking at across, we have three cases, genomics, neurosciences, and AI. It's a six university consortium right now where we are looking at the history of efforts to center equity and ethics, looking at what worked, what didn't, what are best practices, and actually coming up with um, what we may even put out as sort of you know, you know, there's lead certification for for buildings, you know, the energetic and environmental design of buildings, you can get like a green leaf if you like, you know, design your building, you, you do a design charrette yeah. to, to begin with. Right? Well, we want something similar for STEM. Um, we because it, because there are a lot of scientists and engineers out there who want to you know, be a part, I, I was one of those, like very few people go into science to create the next, you know, form of colonization, you know, like it, it just isn't what motivates most scientists and engineers. Most people are trying to make the world a better place, but don't know how. So to your point, Leslie, it's a tall order and it needs to be broken down into its constitutive parts. And we need more resources put into uh, making that legible and 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 providing uh, uh, doing the translation for people who aren't, you know, savvy in this, haven't spent three decades studying this. Um, and so that's, that's what we're attempting to do. We're at the beginning of that, that effort. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. TechSequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.